Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy mountain bikers, thanks for being here and welcome to episode 132 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here as always to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get out on the trails, keep you stoked and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks so much for being here today and thanks for tuning into the show. Now I hope you are all keeping well and everything is going good for you guys over this coronavirus outbreak we're having and um, it's pretty crazy times we're having in the world. So I hope the podcast at least gives you an hour, an hour and a bit just to chill out, relax and uh, forget about reading those corona news articles that seem to bombard us every minute of the day. So hopefully this will help you chill out for an hour and uh, keep the mountain bike stoke going. Now in episode 132, it is awesome, we are chatting with James McKnight, the founder and director of the very cool publications company Miss Spent Summers. Now you may know Miss Spent Summers better by their publications such as Hurley Burley, The World Stage, or even their Death Grip book documenting over 12 months of filming Clay Porter and Brendan Fairclough's landmark movie project. Uh, It was so great to get James on the show and we chat to him about why he wanted to start Misspent Summers, his vision and direction for the company and why he decided to go the paper production route initially when everything else was going online. It was around that time when James started to think about the misspent summers thing and, and made this thing a reality. We also delve into James's racing background, working in Morzine, landing his dream job with the Dirt magazine crew, and of course his collaboration with Tom Cladwell on the new movie Tea and Biscuits, and that is such a freaking awesome show. You really need to check that out. We get into all that, plus a lot more of course, and uh, you can get a link and stuff to Teas and Biscuits in the show notes if you want to check that out so without further ado let's get our feet up let's get some tea and biscuits or coffee or whatever way you want to go chill out for an hour or so guys and listen to james from misspent summers on the mtb tribe podcast hi james welcome to the mtb tribe podcast it's great to have you on the show bro how's things in france okay yeah great thank you very much um pleasure to be on here all good, good all good in France, not too um, caught up in the coronavirus just yet, uh, still allowed to go outside. Uh, <laughs> apart from that, I had a bit of a weak winter, but we've been able to get out on bikes loads this winter, and as well as skiing and stuff, so that's good. Brilliant, mate, brilliant. So the scene there stays open all year for you guys in France. So are you close to a ski resort? Whereabouts are you? Pretty much. We live, uh, my, my girlfriend Morgan and I live about 15 minutes from La Cruza, which is a big ski resort. Um mm but just down the hill a little bit in a little village um, and a slightly lower altitude. So we generally don't get too much or too many sort of consecutive weeks during the winter of, of heavy snow. Um, so we can still ride bikes throughout most of the winter uh, if we're fit. I've been a bit injured, actually. I, I'm mm. lying a second ago, but I've been a bit injured this winter, so I haven't been able to ride a bike too much. I've just been skiing, just had a little hand injury. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, we're lucky we live sort of in a spot where you can quickly go down to lower altitude and keep riding bikes, and then you can go slightly slightly higher up the hill and get on some skis. Wow, cool, man, cool. And does that ski resort in the summer, does it offer the whole mountain bike thing? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really fortunate. Like, Cruiser has some of, I mean, honestly, some of the best 
sort of official mountain bike trails that you'll find anywhere i think there it's got this whole hillside full of hand cut trails that the trail team go in there every summer and they'll be working pretty much from the end of winter until the start of the following winter they'll just work on the mountain bike tracks and they cut them all in by hand yeah most of the most of them anyway wow. uh, that they call sort of enduro trails and they're absolutely amazing and hardly anyone comes here really compared to morzine or something like that we're only an hour from morzine but the tracks just hardly get ridden so yeah lucky. interesting interesting and you they use the ski lifts and obviously for the all up lifts and everything like that yeah there are uh, there are three lifts open in the summer so you get loads of altitude you we pretty much ride on small bike like enduro trail bikes downhill bikes a little bit overkill for it mm-hmm. um yeah, and you just get massive altitude and these big runs you get on one of them you get nearly a thousand meters pretty much on single track uh so yeah, wow. wow and was that the reason for you moving there um i've always floated around the this area of the alps especially in the summers uh like i said we're only about an hour from morzine and mm-hmm. lived through various jobs and sort of friends and stuff lived in different towns and villages within about yeah, an hour hour and a half from morzine um so I've always been in this area and then met my girlfriend Morgan and she was already living in Annecy and we both started living together and got a place kind of in between Morzine and Annecy mm-hmm. up in the hills and yeah we've been here for a few years now. Oh cool. Both of us love it here. Yeah it's crazy you know it, it's when you actually chat to people and they're moving houses and stuff it's always related to where the good trails are and things. When you're into <laughs> mountain biking or surfing or anything kind of lifestyle, lifestyle based like that, it plays a big part in where you live. You always tend to, you know, go towards the good trails or the good surf or something. It's amazing how many people do that kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, got to have our priorities, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, very true. Yeah, so I mean, I personally, I've moved around quite a lot of different spots with pretty much only only trails in mind and good riding and or some employment that can keep me on the bike uh-huh. uh, you know within within easy reach of good trails and fortunately Morgan's the same so we both both are happy living in a spot like this brilliant brilliant no sounds good sounds good well listen we're going to get into things with you today we want to chat about miss spent summers of course and everything you've got going on there uh very very exciting very nice products um so yeah i'm keen to get into that with you i'm really keen to chat to you about that and obviously the teas and biscuits movie that will be released 13th of march yeah yeah exactly Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, there we go. yeah. So it'll be out by the time this comes out. So uh, guys can go and check it out and we'll direct them the right directions where to go and watch that and stuff. Um, but let's chat a little bit about your background, James, because I know the whole bike thing has played a large, large part throughout your life. How did you initially get on a bike? Can you remember your first bike? You know, I've... I have very few memories of my really early childhood, but the ones that do exist are pretty much only through bikes. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty sad, really. But um, yeah, I think my literally my earliest memory in life is just this vision of this 
I don't even I don't know what the bike was. It's this like green uh, bike that seemed massive at the time because I must have been two or three or I don't know how old it was, but. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and I don't know why. I don't know why that's just kind of something that's stuck in my mind forever. This bike that I obviously thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then <clears throat> throughout my childhood was just completely, uh, completely focused on bikes, 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 bikes. Mm. Basically, mm. <clears throat> what what do you think makes people? You know, because most kids at some stage, if, if you're lucky enough you get a bike you know it's one of the things you do as a kid your your parents or whatever learn you how to ride a bike what do you think's the difference between somebody like yourself who gets a bike and then takes it to the next stage and people that just use it as a kind of general thing they know how to do like what sparked you to take it further and 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 keep going to the whole race thing and everything else that you get involved in a little bit there yeah i'm not sure i mean that's a good question i mean I suppose it's your environment. So, I mean, people that are around you who are uh, friends and in friend. I think for in terms of environment, I mean more people around me. So, mm-hmm. inspiration from family, like um, dad. For, my dad, for example, was doing loads of sport when I was growing up. So, I guess I was inspired to do sport as well. And then, mum is a great artist and completely completely focused on on her work and I suppose that it kind of drove her I suppose I sort of saw in her that that focus on what you do that maybe inspired me just to be yeah completely obsessed with my sport mm-hmm. you know which was kind of I suppose my my outlet like my mum for my mum it was her art my dad he was into running and uh, yeah, so it was partly that, and then also community side from all my friends when I was growing up were into bikes, so I guess maybe it was just the thing to do around where we lived. Um, so that just, I guess it just gets ingrained in you. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, but then, like you said, it's funny, uh, quite a few of my friends who were equal, kind of equally as obsessed when I was a kid, they, at some point, most of them have drifted away from bikes and even if they ride them sort of casually now they're not as not as uh, involved in the scene mm-hmm. so yeah i'm not I'm, yeah can't put my finger on what it is that makes someone stay so deeply rooted in that sport or activity but i think it's mainly uh influences from uh family and friends i think Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you were you got into the whole race thing as well didn't you there was yourself and a, a, a bunch of your friends that started racing and then going to different events can you tell us a little bit about that yeah i mean that started when we were about 12 12 13 i think and it was really just to go and ride different tracks and um be part of a scene i think we heard all about these mountain bike races that were happening not far from our house, which was the Sam series, which was the Southern area mountain bike series in, uh, in the UK. And one of my friends had got a flyer for one of them. We ended up all of us entering these races. And then, uh, I think we did, I think we did that whole, pretty much the whole series of races the first year. It was, it was great. They were not far from our mm-hmm. house. We could always kind of, beg someone to drive us there and dump us at a race venue and we just camp and act like idiots for the whole 
<laughs> that was our first season. Yeah, and then that just continued. I think yeah, we all we all sort of stayed in racing for a long time, and it and a kind of scene developed in the town where we where we're all from. And at some point, there were like dozens of us all going to races, like all from the same town, like various wow. various ages, you know, kids, adults. Um, we'd all meet up at these races across across the south of the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what was the scene like there? Was it guys just having fun was there anybody really seriously into it you know what was the scene like what was the vibe like yeah, it's funny i think i was thinking about this earlier i was um just watching uh, tommy's film that we're doing within tin biscuits again i was looking at the merseyside section which is just amazing it's the bunch of just a bunch of guys in the woods sending massive jumps they've got their sandwiches by the track and they've got their cups of tea and they're just messing around having fun i was thinking that kind of reminded me of early days racing for us like, and for everyone. Like there was this super low key scene where there were obviously people competing for the win, but it was everyone was pretty much just camping and pitching up in cars. There weren't many big vans or motorhomes or anything like that. It was just mm-hmm. super low key, um, and it was kind of like the it was the rebellious side of the sport just to go and do downhill racing because it was seen as less serious than cross country. You know, there was sort of the two disciplines at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think probably most people that were into it at that point were doing it because it was a kind of counterculture thing. And it's obviously come a long way down in racing now. And it's kind of a little bit more clean cut. There's still some amazing characters in the sport and it's super inspiring, but it's a little bit of a different scene now. It's more professional and, um, across the board as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's cool, man, when you get involved in something like that, you know, and you're just out. Like, were you going, were you going, because I know you've done quite well in the racing scene and stuff, but were you going, thinking of getting on podiums? Was that your, was that your main reason, or was it to just to go and hang out, do what you love, have a good time with your mates? Well, I did, uh, I think I've, in total, I did about 15 years of racing, like not, not necessarily at any decent level, but just going to races. But I'm not really a competitive person at all. But and like that, the reason that we got into it as kids was because literally to go and ride some tracks. And that was there weren't any other venue, you know, there weren't any official venues at that point. And we just had tracks that we'd built in the woods that we'd sort of been inspired by watching videos and stuff like that and trying to copy them. But we wanted to ride some what we thought were serious tracks on what we thought were big hills, which were actually tiny hills and mm-hmm. not serious tracks. But um yeah it was a way of getting into something really it wasn't to be competitive at first um after a few years or after a couple of years really i suppose we've yeah i mean start doing all right so it was like okay we'll try a bit harder and uh yeah do, do all right did all right as a youth and junior racer i suppose but again it was it wasn't like i mean i was really obsessed with doing well and being the best rider that i could be but it wasn't like the bill and end all it was still all about riding bikes i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you know at that stage when you when you started to get into it did you just look for any sponsors how did you fund the whole racing thing yeah i mean first and foremost uh to be totally honest through being through being privileged which is the fact of having a bike, having uh, supportive parents, 
Um, even if it wasn't like motocross dad style, getting dad running around and getting the best kit every day and stuff. Still have the fact of having a bike and uh, getting some race entries paid like right at the start. And you know, at least that was that was a massive privilege. Um, and then I was really fortunate that pretty much just when I got into it, friend uh, Sean Ratton opened a bike shop in the town that I'm from. Um, he was he was obviously older than I was and he sorted me out throughout the entire time that I was racing he helped out with bikes parts kit um getting brands that he worked with to sort me out free kit and parts for bikes and then fixing my bikes fixing my wheels um yeah trade you know we never had to pay full price or anything so that was massive yeah wow massive advantage. and then uh yeah and then just obviously doing paper round and working in a local corner shop and stuff like that was the way that I paid for racing when I was starting mm-hmm. out and and support for my parents. Yeah, yeah. You do anything to fund your habit, eh? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, I always have, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's extended through my life, you know. Don't don't turn your nose up at a bit of work if it's going to help you carry on doing what you do. Yeah, yeah, for cool. Uh, and, like, at that stage... Um, and it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on this because of what you do now, but when you were racing and coming up as a, as a young guy there with your mates, were you just following any kind of media outlets? Were you just reading magazines? Were you just doing anything like that? Yeah, I think my my, my obsession was, was bikes, but then aside from that, I, I was just, um, I don't know what you call it, just like a compulsive consumer of magazines, I suppose. I'd just be in the, in WH Smith's at any opportunity, just looking through all the magazines, mainly cycling magazines and whatever else sort of looked interesting sports sports stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, Mountain Biking UK was, I guess, the one that existed when I started, then Dirt started. Uh, so I started buying Dirt um, Grip, which didn't last very long, but it was super yeah. cool. Um, yeah, and then following all the online outlets as they were sort of taking off. Um, yeah, but I mean, basically any bike magazine, I'd bought it if I could, or I'd go and read it in the shop and then put it back on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days. That's classic, guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that's crazy. You used to go and see the mag and you'd, you know, you'd start to flick through it and then before you know it, you're sitting, you're sitting in a corner somewhere for <laughs> half an hour and you've kind of read half the magazine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, at that stage, did you ever think of taking this more professional? Did you think that was a route you wanted to go down as a professional racer or anything? I knew, I mean, I remember when I was a young kid, if, you know, the classic question from family and stuff, what do you want to be when you're older? And I was always just like, I just want to ride bikes. And everyone would say, well, you can't just ride bikes. How are you, you know, you've got to actually have a living as well. Uh-huh. I know I'm just going to make a living out of bikes. How are you going to do that? I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I always thought I want to make a living out of bikes. Uh, somehow, didn't know how, didn't have any sort of plan for that. But uh, I wasn't thinking, I was never like, oh, I'm going to be a professional bike rider. It was like, I'm going to make my living out of riding bikes somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you followed your passion. You're still doing that, so it's worked out. Yeah, just about. Yeah, 
So I'm very, <laughs> very lucky he's still here. So that's good. You know, yeah. still, still going. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. So how did you move on from that then? Um, you, uh, you kind of left school, you done all that. What, what kind of direction did your, your career go then? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was fortunate to travel quite a bit with the racing and had a few little sponsors and stuff like that that would help me out traveling and, um, that, I mean, always try and sort of follow any opportunities that come up and, um, if people sort of invite you to go and check something out, I'll do that. So mm-hmm. I was lucky. I've, I've been summering, doing my summer in Morzine since I was 16. I was really fortunate to get a job in Morzine, uh, cleaning the hotel when I was 16 and, uh, moved there, did that, met people through that job, uh, who were kind of bike ride, bike bombs, I guess, and got to travel to quite a few different spots across Europe, uh, uh, with those people, ended mm-hmm. up in a job in Spain, working for Switchbacks in Spain, a guiding company. And at that point, I was like, well, I just wanted to you know, guide it. I suddenly realized that guiding was a great way to make a living out of riding bikes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I got more into that. Yeah. And did the Morzine thing even though you were working in hotels and stuff there, but did that really just make you want to spend more time in Europe and more time at those big resorts and when you could to get the opportunity just to ride your bike and get more involved that way? Yeah, I mean, when I went to Morzine, like I said, I was fortunate that I'd got this job through a friend of my dad's who's a mountain guide uh, who, uh, yeah, long story short, had a friend who had this company in Morzine and they were looking for someone. I ended up there uh, straight after my GCSE exams. I remember I turned up with like half a bike because <laughs> my, my bike was just like exploded before it, before it even got there. Didn't have like a rear shock. I had a downer bike at the time. Didn't have a rear shock for a bike or anything. I ended up just borrowing this bike from the hotel, which was like a you know cheap hardtail mountain bike. And just first day, I, I must have been the first day I got there, riding out into the mountains. I don't know, I guess I'd been, I've been in big mountains maybe once before that, but mm. riding out on my own into the hills on a bit of trail and on this crappy bike, you know, just didn't matter what bike I was on. I was like, uh, mine and eyes were just open to <laughs> to mountains. And uh, that was when I was like, okay, I've got to just try and be in the, in the mountains as much as I can in the future and riding my bike here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, being in that environment and, you know, it seems to be with your career that the network of people you've built around you is so, so important to help you kind of go from one thing to another. Um, and I suppose in the whole the whole media side of things that you're heavily involved in now, the network is, is so, so important. So it's, it's really key to be involved with all those kind of guys. And like, do you think the network you've built up around you has really helped, you know, push your career to where you are now? Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Uh, I've relied on it. I mean, but it's, it's also, I mean, from mountain biking can look like a big sport from the outside now, but it's really small circles. Once you get, mm. once you get involved and you realize that, you know, you, you float around, you rattle around the mountain bike scene and you end up bumping into the same people all the time and 
uh, you know, and people change change jobs and change career paths, but stay in bikes. All the sort of people who are in it for life. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you build up this network, but it's it's really just one big one big happy family of mountain bikers. I think so. Yeah, anyone anyone who's sort of committed their life to it stays in it, and you, you yeah you keep seeing them. Um, so yeah, it's vital. It's vital to have that network. But it's also like I said, it's a lot smaller sort of circles than you'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it seems that way, and it, you know, and I think the network and the people involved, the communities within mountain biking, are so friendly and so welcoming that you know it's a really nice thing to be involved with. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, I say it's small circles, but I mean, everyone's welcome. It's not, it's not like a very cliquey. It's so, it's a super nice sport full of. Mm-hmm. for people who are welcoming and if you want to get into it and like you're obviously and if you're passionate about it then those people who are who are similar similarly minded and in the companies and running their own companies they're all they're always happy to sort of help you help you get with a foot up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no it's so important it's so important um so you've done uh the switch bikes guiding thing how did you find that that's such a big kind of industry now in the mountain bike side of things these guided holidays um yeah did you enjoy that i'm sure you did loved it yeah i mean and they like i said it is a massive thing now there are loads of companies but there were there weren't that many they were only talking um 10 12 years ago but there weren't very many companies then, and no. switchbacks was kind of the one in spain at least yeah of course yeah um so we had tons of people coming out and met tons of really nice people uh get to ride a bike with them all day and everyone's having a nice time and you're in this incredible place on good trails so absolutely love that love doing that as a as a job was that a seasonal thing for you gms pretty much uh yeah so i worked there, i worked there and then in finale league as well and i do yeah. that for a few years sort of did that in the winter and then in the summer, I managed to scrape together a bit of money to go racing for, for a few months and base myself out of Morzine. Um, so yeah, I did that for a little while and road tripped around Europe with, in in the meanwhile, with mostly with my mate Paul Aston, just uh, going race to race and uh, car park to car park, living in the van, <laughs> living, living like <laughs> the gypsy life. And uh, yeah, trying to keep our bikes running trying to keep our bodies running just getting injured and uh going muddy races for you know months in a row in the, living in the van and stuff like that it was uh, character building and good times with with good friends yeah yeah for sure washing in rivers and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes not didn't wash, didn't wash that often to be honest but <laughs> oh dear it's a it's a meal environment only when it's like that huh? <laughs> yeah totally yeah a little bit yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so just transition us into how you got involved in the in the writing thing then because um, you obviously got involved with Dirt Magazine which must have been surreal for you after you know going into the this, this the magazine stores and reading that magazine to actually get involved in it but you've done a little bit of writing before that yeah yeah well, I mean since since I left school I started writing for mountain bike websites uh namely Descent World was a, was a sort of big one and the one that I started with really mm-hmm. and that just I mean I'd always I've always loved reading and like I said I come from a 
pretty creative family. My mum's always been a big inspiration. Like with her, she did a lot of artwork and she she does writing as well. So I guess I've been inspired by that. And um, yeah, so I've always been doing this this writing for websites and trying to get my work out there a little bit. I can't remember what what, what point. I can't remember at what point dirt really came into my life. But yeah, I mean, amazing to start working with dirt. I think I met met Steve Jones properly. That was probably where my well, that's where I first got into dirt. I guess that was in Spain when I met Steve mm-hmm. properly. So I always knew him from the race scene and stuff like that because he, you know, along with Jason Carpenter, they started off the Dragon Downhill series in South Wales and. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Steve, you know he built built a lot of the tracks, and big reason why uh, why there are so many talented riders from from Wales now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it was cool to meet him and properly and hang out with him and started doing some stuff with the just doing some photo shoots with him and then writing bits and pieces here and there. And then at some point, I think in 2010, started writing a column for the magazine. And that was when I was really properly involved from then on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And were you in the Dirt office? What? How did that work? Yeah, so I made it from... So, I mean, until I was 26, I was just just completely rootless, to be honest. I was floating around Europe, um, had friends' holiday company, Rider Refuge, in Morzine, where I'd stay every summer pretty much. Um, they'd put me up. I was kind of in this cupboard room at the top of the chalet. <laughs> uh, so I was lucky to do that, and I was kind of funding my way around doing bits of writing and then building work and stuff like that. Um, like I said, that developed into a bit more of a job for dirt, and in late 2012, that's when I started working full-time for the magazine and moved to Monmouth in South Wales, which is where the dirt office was, um, which is just like a dream run. So I've, I've been, like I said, I've been living in Europe for forever, in mainland Europe, going around all these mountains, looking for the best trails, thinking I was in the best spots. And in the meantime, the British mountain bike scene had been exploding. And moved back to the UK then. Uh, I remember I'd, I'd obviously been to the dirt office quite a lot and always loved it. Hadn't done that much riding there. Mm-hmm. moved back properly and I remember I went and looked at this house to rent in a little village called Simmons Yacht just around the corner from the office and it was great I drove there to go and look at this house drove down all these tiny little lanes houses just perched in the woods and there's a hillside right there and river down below and I thought wow this is this is like being in the Alps but it's right on the English Welsh border in down south and I was like mm-hmm suddenly realised that there's all this world of potential for riding bikes right there on the doorstep. I ended up living there for three, just over three years, um, working full-time with the living, living the life as a kind of bike bomb journalist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was great fun, amazing crew of people. Uh, the riding in Monmouth and Forest of Dean is just unreal. And then we had all these spots that sort of, were popping up so bike park wales was obviously taking off just down the road uh, black mountain cycle center was it was new like in i can't remember what year but 
that started up and suddenly you had this incredible spot just down the road as well mm-hmm. near Abergavenny. Um, yeah, so it's good times living there, to be honest. Yeah, like it, it seems like it. And I know I know you have certainly a good team built around you now um, and a lot, a lot of good, talented people involved. Was the dirt thing like that as well? What was the environment like there? Yeah, it was chaotic. <laughs> in a good or a bad way in a brilliant way yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliantly chaotic yeah, fantastic the office was carnage just a mess uh bike parts boxes uh bikes tires uh packets of biscuits uh wigs uh billy's sort of dressing up stuff uh all this sort of chaos and then a few people sat on their computers doing some pretty good work, uh, uh, making making a good magazine. Uh, that was that was my view from the outside when I moved in, and yeah, it was like yeah, it's, gen- it's genuinely like that kind of great friendly environment. Sometimes not a lot of work would get done in a day, and everyone ended up staying late or something because you realised that you'd just been chatting all day, or the local bike some of the local bike riders dropped in and again brought some biscuits everyone sort of down tools for a bit and just started yapping um <laughs> but it was a brilliant environment and a lot of the people that that got to know really well through that are now involved in miss ben summers so yeah. which is great you know chris who does most of our chris jones who does most of our design work he's he was a dirt designer in, until the last magazine mm-hmm. uh, likewise john gregory who does design work for us and illustration sometimes he's he used to be a dirt designer before that um ben winder who's my business partner he literally grew up in the dirt office i grew up next door to steve jones and billy thackeray around the dirt website and um yeah so i think uh the famous dirt 104 track i think winder I think he broke broke at least one wrist when he. I think he said Steve Jones broke his wrist on that. I think that was his first experience of mountain biking or something. So, yeah. yeah, and so Windows were completely rooted in the sort of dirt background and mountain biking in the Y Valley Forest Dean. Mm-hmm. And he's he's kind of the the other person running the company with me now. Um, and then Mike Rose, who's a long term dirt editor, he's 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 officially involved now. He's got gone and got a real job, so he's. Kind of unofficially involved now, still, and yeah. helps out with a bit of bit of uh, photo selecting and giving us his opinion on work we've done and stuff like that. So super cool. Yeah, and you need that good team. You need that environment, and you seem to have carried a bit of that over from the dirt days, um, which I'm sure is awesome to still have those guys involved. Uh, yeah, it's with great. You. And then, yeah, and that was the kind of core team involved, and then through dirt we had this big network of people who were not just contributors, but sort of almost staff and close friends. And uh, Victor Lucas, who's a bit of a legendary photographer, he was, he was one of those guys who was always around the dirt office or we'd bump into him or I'd go off and do some travel feature with Victor and stuff like that. And he's become involved as well. So, I mean, that's mm. great. There's, there's this massive community of, uh, mountain bikers and photographers writers um who are involved with the and um yeah having them having them involved in this event summers now is is perfect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and it's sad it's sad to dirt's obviously no longer with us but um 
yeah, was that a media thing, that an online thing that caused that? What was the issue? Because because it seemed to be quite successful, the Dirt magazine. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was a success. It was profitable. Um, not that anyone in Dirt cared at all about that. It wasn't, you know. It yeah. was the, we had this office down in Monmouth. We were away from the main factory media who was a publisher. They had their offices in London. And, um, you yeah, know, we sort of kept a distance, but you know, there's some great people at the factory as well. Um, but then there were also some sort of, it's easy to criticise when, you know, it's easy to stand back and sort of criticise, but it seemed like there was some pretty bad business decisions made or people employed who sort of at a higher director's level, management level, who kind of started taking some brutal decisions and, Mm-hmm. chasing chasing numbers too much and that was started putting too much pressure on their title I think and um, probably yeah I mean like with anything if as soon as you start if you've got a product and you start removing some of its quality then I think that just for the sake of a bit of profit margin then then it's kind of the start of the end so I think that mm. for the company as a whole that started happening um on the face of it they said that you know it was obviously it's easy to say that it's a changing media landscape is the cliche that everyone says and uh, you need to start chasing the online numbers but if anything people already had that wrapped up pink bike was brilliant wide open mag does a great job on the uk scene mm-hmm. uh, other things like that and so suddenly just going completely online i don't from from a company that was founded based on print titles from mountain biking, skate, BMX, uh, snowboarding, surf, stuff like that. that. I think that was a kind of bad decision just to cut out all the print titles because they were the foundation of the whole company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of slippery slope once they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but um, I don't like reading stuff online. I don't know, man. I just don't get it. Like, yeah. you it's know, hard, I prefer. Right, yeah. There's some uh, brilliant content online. There's brilliant stuff, and you know, if we're just focusing on mountain biking, there's brilliant features and bike tests and stuff like that. It's really, yeah. hard. I find it really hard to read stuff online, though. Uh, easy to watch videos and stuff, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, reading is diff- difficult, uh, mm-hmm. and we don't want to watch videos all the time. So that's why I think there's still for me and people like me there's there's a need for print tile or some different way of getting your getting your media yeah yeah i agree i agree all right let's chat about misspent summers then um and how all that came about so you started off with the hurley burley um that was about 2016 that's right and that was the downhill world cup uh and champs book tell us a little bit about that uh what made you start that? What what made you filter into that? Because uh, you you effectively started by yourself, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, effectively. But I mean, with a lot of help from friends and yeah. photographers and designers and contributors. But um, what made it happen was, <clears throat> I mean, though, basically in 2015. So the mag, the mag got pulled. Uh, in spring, so sort of early early 2015, 
um, company fired or let go quite a lot of its staff. I was fortunate that they offered me a job to stay there and run the website with Mike Rose and Steve Jones. Mm-hmm. And but it was like massive pressure on the three of us to to like I said chase all these numbers. I worked worked my ass off traveling around and stuff like that and ended up a uh, bit of a dark story. I ended up waking up in hospital in Andorra, just completely, literally worked myself into the ground. Wow. Um, yeah, and got really ill and had a few months, kind of, oh, well, kind of six months, really not not 100%, and ended up leaving the job in the middle of that, obviously, because it was just not working out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I was really ill. Um yeah, because it's weird, you know, these things can look glamorous, you know, people see the end product and it looks glamorous going <laughs> to all these different, you know, venues and, uh, you know, being involved in something you love. But, you know, it's interesting. That's the other side of it. The crazy hours, the never stop and the, the continual pressure. Yeah, I like, mean, just, yeah. With, so when you're chasing numbers on a website as well, there's 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 no limit to how much you can do. So you end up just doing so much and... Uh, yeah, I was doing that and traveling around and not resting at all. And yeah, literally worked myself into the ground. So then I was like, right, I've got to rethink what I'm doing here. And like I said, left the job. Um, thinking, who do you want to work for? And you think, like, and you start thinking, oh, the company I actually really want to work for probably doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And the projects I want to work on probably don't actually exist at the moment. So it's either compromise and go and do other stuff, which is part of what I've done, which is doing freelance writing, which is great and I love it. And then, or but you don't want to just completely give up and do that. So I thought I'm going to do it myself and try and make the company that I want to work for and that hopefully other people want to work for. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about it in yeah 2016. I've been I've been the book thing doing the downhill yearbook been thinking about that for absolutely ages um because it just seemed like there was there wasn't a way there wasn't anywhere that the down world cup was recorded in a kind of permanent permanent way it's just features going online photo galleries going online and results going online stuff like that i mean you're never going to be able to find it in the future mm-hmm and it didn't, it just seemed like, it just seemed a bit sad. It was just like all these amazing races, pivotal moments in history, the evolution of the sport, great stories, characters, they just were going to vanish. So it was an idea, it'd been an idea for a long time to do a book. And then trying to figure out how to actually make that happen was kind of a long process. Mm-hmm. Um, going through various ideas of working with, publishers outside mountain biking working with publishers within mountain biking um and then the other like self-publish option which is what it became thankfully mm-hmm. um which obviously was seemed like a much bigger sort of leap leap of faith because there was no infrastructure in place so i had to create all of that um but yeah, that was that was always the first starting place. Was there's got to be a book about the downhill World Cup scene because it feels like all these seasons are going to be forgotten in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that was the whole drive behind doing it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. And like, was that a nervous time for you? Because obviously, if you're doing something yourself, you have to more or less fund it yourself, I suppose. Was that a difficult time? Uh, were you were you thinking to yourself, how am I going to fund this? Is it going to work? Is it you know, are people going to enjoy it? Was it was it a difficult time for you? Absolutely, it still is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's um, yeah, the, like I said, trying to get a, I was trying to get a publisher involved to start with because you just think first thing you think is, oh, there's no way I can do that. It's far too expensive. There's no way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But then you start speaking to a publisher and spoke to a few different people and either they come in and they'd sort of shut you down and say you know you have, might have people out of the company who are excited but then other parts of the company looking more at the financial side sort of saying oh no it's too much of a risk to do a new print product so then you start going but I mean I was kind of like hell-bent on doing it so I was like well that's mm. not, not going to stop stop it happening yeah um especially as I just had a bit of a rough year before I was like I've got to restart something positive here um yeah so it's i mean it seemed hard at first and then you start speaking to printers and distribution and stuff like that and you realize that you might not need as much sort of capital as you think you did in the first place to do print stuff it's pretty that i mean some parts of it are massively expensive but other parts uh you can get away with and had a good board, group of people sort of on board uh, with the photographers, uh, Sven Martin, Boris Bayer, and Seb Sheck, who kind of who were all up for doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just kind of on a promise, you know. It was like, hopefully this will work out, and you get paid for your photographs because they obviously spend they spend an enormous amount of time and money traveling around following the World Cup scene, so they have to get paid properly for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I I was just kind of creating the book not spending an enormous amount of money myself mm-hmm. um but yeah it took a lot of saving up to get the just to get the funds together to print i mean print's not cheap to do obviously uh, especially for a high quality product mm-hmm. so that took quite a long time quite a lot of saving up and doing some stupid hours and stupid amount of jobs at the same time to get that together and then some help from my girlfriend Morgan like on the funding side as well sort of both chipped in and managed to get enough together to do the print for that first one Mm -hmm. and what kind of did you go to the printers thinking okay can you print me a thousand copies 500 copies what were you kind of thinking is there a minimum for that type of thing sort of there's yeah there is a minimum there's kind of a there's a certain amount that is it's not worth doing fewer copies because the cost of setting up the print the all the machinery is so expensive that you might as well do at least i think i think try to do a sort of small project um so i can't remember what we're trying to do we're trying to print something on a small scale at some point and worked out that actually you might as well do uh i think it's about one and a half thousand copies was the minimum mm. so we started the first book we did uh, like i think we did two and a half thousand copies on the first book okay. 2400 copies don't know why we started on that number <laughs> um, <laughs> can't remember now <laughs> uh so it was like first of all it was because it just didn't make any sense to do fewer than that and then it was like okay if we want to pay strive to pay everyone 
a semi-decent amount of money, then we're going to have to sell quite a few. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's what we did. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people, I suppose even more so back then, were saying to you, you know, don't go into the paper side of things. There's magazines out there. It's why did you want to go down paper the paper route, and how did you kind of make the product different? They said it's um, like you said, it's just not the same reading something online as it is in the book. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that you I'm not against reading. I'm not against reading stuff online. Like similar to you, I don't particularly enjoy it as much as reading something in paper. But yeah, I do still read a lot of stuff online, especially news. Um, but it's just a different way of doing it. And, you know, when, when you want to switch off from a computer as well, you want to read a book. Um, so yeah, I guess that's why I went down the lines of print and it feels like a, to me, it feels like a permanent medium that's going to be around in 10 years time, a book, Mm -hmm. especially something that's kind of quality like that. Maybe magazines go into stacks and people lose them, maybe, but, uh, a book that someone's invested 15 quid on, they'll probably keep it in their collection for 10 yeah. years. And in 10 years time, they'll be able to go back to it and read it. Um, and then what we did differently, I suppose, was just to make something, wanted to make something really good quality that's, like I said, that you'd keep on your shelf. But didn't want to go down the lines of a kind of hardback book because then you're looking at something that costs, to the consumer, might cost 40 quid or 50 quid or something. Okay. And I wanted it to be available to everyone to sort of buy and us to be able to ship it around the world quite easily. Um, and I really like I like soft cover books because I feel like you can just flick through them and glance through them much more easily. So that was why we chose the format, the kind of fairly heavy paper, quite a thick cover, but you want it to still be easy to look through and easy to open. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of hardback. Yeah, sort of photo books as much like unless it's really special limited book that you're you're gonna mm-hmm. keep to bring out every now and then to look at. But for something like this, it felt like I still think we. Sort of, I'm pretty happy with the format for it. Yeah, yeah, and you know what I love about that your style of book is it's kind of like a coffee table book. You know yeah. what I mean? You can set it on the coffee table there. You can flick through it when you've got 10 minutes. You can have yeah, a read. Exactly. You know, I and it's... And I think I've always thought that with magazines. With a magazine, you know, obviously our book's 15 quid, but with magazines, they'll be around five pounds or something like that. Yeah. And you get this amazing, amazing product full of incredible photography, uh, well thought out writing and stuff like that. And just for a few quid, you get that. Uh, I've also that's great. And with our books, yeah, it steps it up a tiny bit more from that. And it's something that you maybe put on your coffee table. Friends have a look at. It looks great. It's kind of like a bit of decoration for your house as well. But it mm. also is full of all the stories and best photographs from the season. And it's kind of uh, works on different levels, I think. Yeah. Yeah, like the beautiful thing about it is you don't throw this kind of book away or you don't recycle it. You know, you keep it, you pass it on to friends, you revisit it again and again, you know, and you, you kind of say, I wonder what happened in 2016. <laughs> who, who actually won that? And then you can go back into the book. That's the really nice thing about it, you know. 
Yeah, like I said, that was one of the main goals and kind of mission is to recall the history of the sport. And it sounds cheesy saying it, but it's like a history book of the sport as well. Mm-hmm. And it's and we really hope that's what will happen in 10 or 15 years. People will still have them and they'll go, what happened in the 2017 season? Oh, right, there it is. It's all in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll carry on. And suddenly there'll be this big catalogue of... of uh, annuals from every season uh yeah so i'm really i'm yeah proud of what we do because it's nice to to do that recording yeah recording what happens yeah and your books are bumper packed they're like over well over 200 pages they have a nice silk finish so there's something you'll want to keep and that you'll want to put in your bookshelf and stuff so yeah exactly yeah they're really nicely made we i can't remember exactly how we came to use them but there's a printers in west wales called cambrian printers and they do quite a lot of specialist products and they did the uh, did the ride journal um i think we probably looked at that and chris jones the designer his friend had been making that book um so we ended up with this printers cambrian we tried lots of different printers and samples and stuff and they do such a great job on the books and they're amazing quality um, so we're lucky to work with them, and because there aren't many products that come out that, are, like I said, have such attention to detail from the printers, especially when they're doing. You know, we 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 do tiny print orders with them compared to probably what they deal with with other people. Mm-hmm. But they still work with us on a really personal level and help us produce something to to the best standards that we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really nice. It's nice to have somebody like that involved. Yeah, for sure. So initially, how was the response? How did, how, when you released that first Hurley Burley yearbook, how did that all go down? How did it, how did it respond? How did people respond to purchase? Yeah, well, it was nerve wracking putting it out there because <laughs> you just don't, yeah. you know, I had no audience, you know, you just think how you're starting from absolute zero. You don't have a platform to, to sell it, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, we've, ordered a load of books we've invested a hell of a lot of time and money into this now uh and we've dragged loads of people into this project with us hope just you're just hoping that it's going to go well and yeah put it out put it out on sale in yeah december 2016 and literally uh i think literally it's about a minute after i put it on sale we were selling copies and the first people who bought them were Dan. uh well remy Tyrion was the first person to buy one wow yeah and then danny hart's dad bought one and then it was just like orders just kept coming in uh so i mean that was awesome just to suddenly think this is actually going to work amazing um, actually yeah actually, danny's I'm, danny's I'm, heart massive amount of money and just lost it all so that's good <laughs> yeah 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 and were people buying them online just via your website or how were they purchasing them yeah it's i mean it was amazing we had big help first year and still get help from outlooks like pink bike and wide open and all sorts of uh sort of more core websites across the world and stuff who mm. helped promote the book and um yeah so that just got it out there and then people just going to the website and buying them online and we started selling to some shops and it's no shop thing we're trying to build on it this year it's mm-hmm. i had to basically when i was starting the company i had to think 
there aren't well until we get to a certain level you can't drag other people into it to commit too much of their time to the company because you're asking a lot of people whereas if i spend a lot of my time on it that's fine because it's because it's my own thing but because i didn't want to get too many people too deeply involved to start with had to try and think how to minimize the the kind of amount of work hours or the kind of admin the admin stuff the kind of all mm-hmm. the all the bits of running a magazine or a book that you don't realize when you're on an editorial team like at dirt you suddenly realize when you're doing it on your own you suddenly realize why in the front of dirt magazine there's like 20 names that you that don't even work in your office because they're doing the distribution customer care print liaison stuff like that that you suddenly yes. realize there's a hell of a lot to get done yeah um, yeah so working with shops i mean it's something we always want to keep doing and keep building up on but every time from the start anyway it's like every time you get a book order to a shop it's from my point of view it's like emails back and forth which is fantastic to get the books in the shops uh but the business model was more do it online where it can all be automated and have a warehouse where it can all be automated from mm-hmm. uh to sort of relieve some of the workload from me um yeah so people still do mostly buy them online I and mean, we have them in bike parks trail centers shops um cafes stuff like that all over the place but uh, the majority of the sales are still online now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you initially were selling them, were you packaging them up yourself and going to the post office and doing all that kind of stuff? No, I mean, we looked at all the different <laughs> options. I mean, yeah. it was like, well, the options, you do that, you do it yourself, or you sort of start your own little warehouse thing where you pay someone to come and do it for you, or you try and find a find another company to do it for you. And mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I found a... Uh, for me, that was never an option to do it ourselves because I mean, I looked at it and thought about the feasibility, and it was just like, that's ridiculous. It's never going to work because, all right, it might work where you go, okay, let's get a few people around for a day and we'll package up loads of stuff and send it off. But then in five days' time, when you have some more orders come in, yeah, you have to suddenly, you might end up suddenly doing that as a full time job. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I need to find a different way of doing it. So I got a fulfillment company that could take care of all our stock, have the all the those other things, store everything in good conditions to store books because obviously it's a natural product, the paper, and it will um, if you don't store it properly, then it will deteriorate. So you need somewhere to store them properly that take care of and that everything could be automated, mm-hmm. um, and that they get decent postage rates because we get much better postage rates through partnering with a company than we ever would have done on our own so it seems like sometimes you think you do it yourself and it might save you money because you're not paying another company but in the, at the end of the day it was actually much cheaper to employ the company and do it ourselves yeah yeah wow there's so much involved there eh? yeah <laughs> yeah no you start you realize when you start writing down what the jobs are that are actually involved in it you start thinking yeah it's a big old process actually doing one of these things yeah and everything you know, the stuff you don't think of like building a website and making sure the sales platform works um and you know marketing and obviously it's more obvious one but um yeah everything customer support stuff like that there's there's there's, there are many layers that you have to work on to get a product like this to work 
Yeah, it's nuts, man. It's nuts. Um, so let's jump to the World Stage book then. You brought it out in 2017, and that's it's the Enduro World Series kind of yearbook following that throughout the year. But I want to chat to you about a wee thing because it was promoted this year. Glenn O'Brien was in a short movie for you. <laughs> he was. Now, Glenn's from, Glenn's the, the master of all where we're from here in Ireland, up the north. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how did that come about? How did you get involved with Glenn? Total, total legend. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was because Victor Lucas, uh, like I said, legendary photographer, he's, he's really involved in the company now and he's becoming more and more involved. Um, we started dragging him into our sort of... Uh, We've got, I don't know why, but we got into badminton. So that's sort of our office uh, office release against badminton. Victor started getting into Really? That. Wow. <laughs> um, so he's become part of the kind of group. And yeah, he was he was back home in Ireland and we wanted to do something sort of funny to promote the book a little bit and just have a bit of a giggle as well. And mm-hmm. he, he, he said that he said they had this idea to do the, the film there. Um, so that's how it came about. But I mean, it's great because he's bought some books from us before as well, Glenn O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's was, it was really like amazing to have him on the video. Actually, it's worth watching. It's not what people might imagine. No, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, it's really good fun. And you know, Victor obviously knows Glenn very well because it's very Glenn. You know, yeah. <laughs> it sits well, had, him yeah. down to the ground. It was great. I mean, they had this other idea as well. I mean, with with John Laura as well, who, who's helped doing some filming stuff and some writing for us. Uh-huh. Um, there was an even there was another another plan as well, but we we toned it down a bit from the original plan, which was kind of oh, it was it was also involving the same <laughs> similar theme. I won't give too much away. People got to watch it. Go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's on YouTube. I think you can find it there easily and stuff. Um, no, it was hilarious, man. I'm sure Glenn got, you know, yeah, Glenn's Glenn. Like he's a, he has a legend. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good stuff. So you then also done the Death Grip book, which documents uh, about twelve months of filming um, Clay Porter's movie. Yeah, I mean, obviously that was a massive project, and. Clay's got this amazing rich history and mountain bike films and he's mm-hmm. made so many of the most memorable mountain bike films out there and worked on all these projects with brands and stuff and with the acting projects and stuff like that. It's been someone who's really helped shape shape mountain biking as we see it now. Mm-hmm. That was super cool. I, I can't, to be honest, I can't, completely remember how the conversation started but yeah we ended up making a book that followed the, the sort of whole process that went into making death grip film so um mm-hmm. all the riders and locations and um a bit of story from from clay and from brendan fairclough who's obviously the star of the film um some fun stuff oh, we did that with john gregory designer like so he was he's got his a classic style that Dirt fans will all remember, and it's a good, fun book. Um, something that I'm really, again, one of one of the projects that I'm really one of my favourites, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that must be very nice for yourself, you know, for 
the likes of those guys to come to you and say, you know, we're wanting to document the making of this movie. Can you guys do it for us? Like that must feel really good that you're doing something that people are enjoying and they want to have your expertise involved and in what they love doing. You know, it must feel so, so good. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, also it was like we put out early, the first Hurley Burley book on sale and just a couple of months later, Clay came and said, let's do this book. And it, and then stuff sort of started taking off where it wasn't, wasn't just like, okay, we've done one book and it's been a bit of a success. It's fine. It's like, oh, actually, this has suddenly become a company and we're making other books for other people and not just any old books. It's like working on one of the most significant film projects of recent times for mountain biking. And mm-hmm. yeah, incredible. What a, what, a, what a nice thing to be, be able to do. Yeah. Does that just fill you full of confidence? Does it make you want to do more or does it kind of validate what you're doing almost? Yeah, I'd say, yeah. I mean, it definitely definitely makes you feel like you you're doing something that people care about where you I haven't just you haven't just done a kind of pet project that you wanted to do because you love print you see that other people actually see a reason for that existing as well mm-hmm. and and a book to go alongside a film is a great way of doing it and uh, and then that's kind of developed into doing like you said the world stage enduro world series book which is like actually that race series needs needs its history recording as well and then doing other projects for for brands and teams and stuff like that where people see that they print there's nothing quite like a holding a quality product like that Mm -hmm. yeah because you've ventured into lots of different kind of avenues now um which is really cool to see and you're doing mountain bike guide books and things as well that guide book looks amazing (laughs) thank you yeah, I mean, just so that's the thing. Everything we want to do, we're all passionate about what we do from every level about the writing, the words, uh, so the writing, the photography, the design, um, the final sort of product, how that sits. So we never want to do something that's sort of second rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're going to do guidebooks, we wanted to make sure that they're it's sort of viable to do them where we might actually be able to afford to do them. So we've made a product that we're hoping to replicate with different destinations. Um, that's the kind of size that people can buy, pick up for a reasonable price. And it gives them a really nice overview and feel of a mountain biking destination mm-hmm. um, that they might want to visit or that they, they have been to and they want it as a souvenir as well. You want it to work on different levels as well so that, Mm-hmm. they can take it away that's that's kind of one of the main ideas i think is that people can visit somewhere and take it away as a as a souvenir yeah because it's it's kind of more than just your typical guy book because it goes into the history and chats about bike stores and everything else kind of involved that you would need to or you would want to know really when you're visiting somewhere so yeah, so yeah yeah hoping that it'd be the guidebooks we thought really with so many resources online now to actually find your way around somewhere to navigate like trail forks and you know trip advisor and stuff like that you don't really need to provide a list of a list of kind of facilities as such you really want to just get a feel of a place and find out where the best places to go mountain biking are and mm-hmm. get a bit of a recommendation of trails and you know what 
if we sort of end up becoming a sort of trusted source for travel stuff, then you want to see what we found to be a sort of fun, fun place to go and ride or good place to eat. Then that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. But also, mm-hmm. like I said, to give a bit of a background for a place, meet some of the locals who build the trails and who run businesses. Um, something that's where we, where all of that sort of gathered into one book that where people don't have to search around online to get all that information and uh yeah yeah it's very nice very yeah. nice i think you'll do really well with those i think it's something very cool you know because I when i go when i go to a resort i normally try and bring back a sticker but that's yeah. a much nicer thing to bring <laughs> back yeah well that's a good idea so, yeah i like that do you stick them on your van or something as well yeah. all right well I haven't. It's mainly snowboarding stuff I would do that with, and then I stick the sticker on my board. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But uh, a book Maybe, would be yeah. much nicer. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. Hopefully, we'd, we'll have a bit of a collection, and people can then build build up a bit of a stack of places they've been or places they want to go where they'd see it. You know, I think I got inspired because traveling around all the time, you see, you see different. Obviously, every place you ever go, every especially if it's a holiday destination, they do their own. Sort of little guidebook or mm-hmm. magazine thing about the destination, and you see the massive variety of quality. And some of them you just think that's a waste of paper, and then some of them you think, Well, wow, that's a lovely product, mm-hmm. I want to pick that up. And that was the idea to do something like that where it's not completely tied in with the resort, so it's giving some people, so it's giving people a kind of independent view of a resort as well or destination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and will you and the guide you'll be looking at it from a mountain bike perspective, will you? Absolutely, yeah. We yeah. thought really, I mean, in, we're all into. I mean, Chris, the designer, he comes from a surf background. He designed surf magazines for a long time, um, and he sort of lived in his van in Hossega for years and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. and obviously, uh, living in the Alps, I do a lot of snowboarding and skiing. So we kind of like, you know what? If we ever wanted to in the future, then maybe we'd expand into doing doing other sports as well. But at mm-hmm. the moment, we've done one mountain bike guidebook, and that's our focus is building up on that. Yeah. Uh, that's really something we want to expand on this year. And so we got our main core products, which are the yearbooks, and they're obviously big projects, and they sort of mainly come at the end of the year. And we want to do print stuff that's sort of spread out throughout the year as well. That are smaller projects that people can pick up for for a few quid or five to ten pounds and sort of have a easier read and get inspired to go and ride bikes or visit new places yeah yeah no it's nice the the products are very very lovely and you have a line of clothing there as well people can purchase to help help you out and everything yeah. else in a bike calendar and all so yeah you're doing you've got loads to offer there yeah trying to keep building on it and adding more stuff and we've got a good following following of people now um who subscribe to our newsletter and get all our updates and thank you know read my nonsense that I send out in newsletters every <laughs> now and then just droning on at them about what we're up to. Um, so that's really nice and just to keep building on that for them because and we get really nice you get some really nice letters from people who are really into what we do and they love to build on their collection of stuff we've done. That's super cool and yeah, I guess having some merchandise is part of that so that people can sort of 
wear wear your brand as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we didn't want to just do kind of logos, so we've got some friends to do some pretty cool designs for our t-shirts and jumpers and stuff like that. So we actually want to do that semi semi seriously as well. Yeah, yeah, no, very cool, very cool. Um, now I'm a bit concerned about time here because I'm keeping you a bit longer than I should, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, is the misspent summers thing your full-time gig? Can you make a good living from this kind of thing, James? I think you can eventually. The thing is, with, I think with a company like this, you have to spend a long time building it up, building the foundation for the company. And we're just about there now where it's at, a, it's at a level where it can become a job within the next year or so, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but up until now, I haven't paid myself out of the company at all. What? Really? Not, not at all. <laughs> so wow, so you, are, are you doing side projects to fund yourself or? Yeah, so I work pretty much like full time as a as a freelance writer. So I do that for all sorts of brands and media outlets. And, uh, and then I work for a resort in Italy, sort of helping them with their mountain bike program. So I have, so have full time work doing other stuff and then shoehorning. Actually, I'll probably shoehorn in all the work around misspent summers. That's probably the right way around. Mm-hmm. It's really my passion. You know, I do a lot of work for big companies and work for Red Bull a lot, and which is great. It's great to be employed by people, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you always get there's always times when you think, oh, flipping egg. I just you don't want to be answering to someone. You want to be running your own business, and it's it'd be an absolute dream when it gets to a point when it's big enough. Where you can actually uh, you know, earn a bit, bit of the living from misspent summers. Yeah, so, well, that that's a crazy amount of dedication there, man. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's, I read ages ago that from uh, from somebody who's run some decent companies in the past. I read, uh, you know, if you're doing an online project, it should explode straight away. It should be popular from the start. If you're doing a analog company if you're doing print or something physical products you've just got to take your time and build a base and make something that's authentic and um like like we were saying earlier there's so many processes involved in running a print company that never expected it to be to straight away be to be easy never expected to be easy obviously Mm -hmm. never expected it to be paying loads of money straight away there's so many people involved that you think, well, you have to actually be raising a lot of money through the product to pay everyone a, a fair amount of money. Mm-hmm. So that was a priority is to keep moving up the amount that we can pay people um, before paying ourselves. Because like I said, it's, a, it's my own company my, with Ben Winder. Um, so for us, investing loads of our own time in it is one thing because we've got something at the end of it, which is a company, but if you're dragging other people in, you have to pay them a respectful amount. Um, that's that's the priority. But yeah, almost there now. We could have could yeah. have also paid ourselves a bit, but we we're into investing back into it and building it up. Um, ben and I both have freelance enough freelance work that we can get by, and it it all fits around fits around what we're doing with the company. 
Yeah, amazing, man. Amazing. Super dedication, dude. It really, really is. Um, and to be releasing such a lovely product, you know, and not even kind of getting paid for from it just shows your passion. You know, you're doing it for the passion of the thing at the minute, you know, and hopefully yeah. it'll become your full-time gig down the line. So Yeah, totally, yeah. And I think it will. I think, yeah, it's going well. It's building up every year, and that's great. And we've reached more people, and we keep doing quality products. So the people who have bought our stuff in the past, come back and buy more stuff so thank mm-hmm. you to everyone who does that um yeah. and then more people discover the company and most of them will hang on as well so it's just something that grow grow up mm-hmm. grow in size uh sort of organically and slowly and become a become a decent company so and we get some fantastic support from the industry as well so that's a sign that we're doing the right thing and that it's got a good future ahead of it and that's only building as well yeah cool man cool um and i noticed you can buy batches online do you get many, many people going and saying wow this is what i've been and they just buy a batch of books just just buy yeah. them all yeah amazing how many people are that's incredible i'm so grateful to all the people who go and buy a bundle pack that might yeah. cost 50 quid or they'll buy two they'll buy the whole or they buy the whole collection and spend 150 pounds or or more plus the postage you know it's a big investment are making it shows that they like what we do and that's uh it's amazing so yeah yeah i so say cool. thank you to everyone who does that but yeah, even, man, 15 yeah. quid, you know, even 15 quid if you just buy one book even that's quite a big investment really 15 quid is i mean you could say that in some places you know if you're in london you probably get coffee for that much but at the <laughs> same time i find it hard to part with 15 pounds quite quite a lot of the time um for a product so even those people, thanks thanks to them. So it's an investment on their part as well. Yeah, cool, cool, brilliant. Now, before I let you go, I want to chat to you quickly about tea and the tea and biscuits movie because you were very very kind to let me see a pre preview of that uh, before we chat it. And um, that movie's great, man. Great fun. Everybody's super super talented in that show. Um, how did that come about? Did you have a good crack doing that? Yeah, amazing. I mean don't want to take any of the glory away from tommy c who cool bell visuals who's actually made the product i mean he's done all the hard work but incredible for us to be involved in that tommy came to us last year and said that he wanted to do something a kind of long form film project and wanted to do it with us which is amazing we've known tommy for, for quite a long time since he mm-hmm. since he came and worked at dirt magazine for a few weeks um probably in 2013 I guess something like that um, and he's obviously been putting out some amazing edits and uh, slice of pie films that he did with Dirt and stuff like that he's doing, doing some real sort of films that have really influenced the bike scene the mountain bike scene in the UK and taken the UK bike scene outside of the UK as well where people have got this view into just crappy woodlands where people are just slamming into ruts and having a good time as a big bunch of mainly blokes on bikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's amazing. Like the Tim Biscuits, it was like he wanted to build on the Slice of Pie films, do something a little bit different uh-huh. um, that's changed the sort of production values a little bit and brought in a little bit, brought in some sort of more, more downhill bike riding and a bit more of a variety of riding. And that's what we've done. And Tommy has done such an amazing job on the film. It's so much fun. I, the first time I watched it, I was just laughing the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, watched it with my mate 
Paul Aston actually like on the preview, like the first copy that Tommy sent through. And uh, yeah, we actually you know stopped it, rewound a few bits, watched you know kept watching bits over and over, which was super cool because I mean I you know I grew up watching so religiously watching mountain bike films and learning how to ride bikes from that and copying what people were doing and that and I just think I I think that kids and and adults will be totally inspired by this because it's just fun it breaks down the barrier there's there's pro riders in it but there's also uh, sort of lesser known riders or unknown riders but everyone in it's super impressive and everyone's having fun and it just makes you laugh and want to go and ride your bike so that's job done I think that's Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's great from the perspective that you know the fun these guys are having with some of the trails they're building, and effectively anybody can do it. You know, yeah, exactly. Anybody can do that in their local forest if they've got permission or whatever, whatever way it works for you there. But um, you know, it, it's so cool, and like that's what I kind of can remember from starting. You know, as we maybe chatted about a wee bit earlier that. It was just guys having fun in their local forest, you know. Yeah, and I mean, that's, for me, and I think everyone, we've just done the premieres in the UK, which which went down really well. One at Landegra, one Planet Adventure, and one at Stiff Cycles in Bristol. And um, everyone really loved there's the second section of the film. So the first section, it starts out with this absolutely mind-blowing riding by Kate Edwards, like on little bike at revolution bike park just doing mm-hmm. some mad tricks you know you think this guy's he's a da- professional downhill racer that's his day job but his skills on a bike are just mind-blowing mm-hmm. that blows you away and then the second section you just go merseyside and a massive bunch of lads throwing themselves at tracks on beat up old bikes and <laughs> hard tails with crappy brakes um just sandwiches and you know sarnies and cups of tea in the forest pissing around and oh god it's amazing and that from the premieres everyone pretty much said that was their favorite section because you've got mm-hmm. all the amazing sections of the film with top riders and people we all know about but that really just like you said it embodies that whole sort of spirit of going out and just messing around on bikes in the woods mm-hmm. improving crashing breaking stuff um just hanging out good community of people and enjoying riding bikes yeah yeah it's cool the scene with maybe 15 20 riders coming down through the trails together is pretty awesome yeah exactly so cool man so cool amazing no there's lovely and the the team biscuit thing plays a role throughout throughout the movie yeah Um, it's it's cool Um, i was very disappointed not to see ginger nuts in there to be honest oh i'm sorry about that (laughs) Report back to base that you know, failed. I mean, I thought you might. Have, I thought you were going to say that you were a bit disappointed in Tommy's uh, brew colours because we do actually give him quite a bit of stick about that. He does quite a weak brew, and uh, and it appears on. The film. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> Let him get away with it. <laughs> I love the uh, I love the scene where the guys says, "I'm I'm breaking the rules. I'm having coffee and no biscuits." <laughs> Exactly. Uh, there's just bets that got through it are just very yeah, fun. Total, total anarchy. Crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, so, what's your role in it then, James? What's Miss Spent Summers doing for the movie? Yeah, so that was Tommy sort of said, like, we want to do a project with you. And it's a way of sort of 
kicking off a bit of a YouTube channel and also for him just having a publisher if that's when he, what you want to call us behind it where we help him out with the sort of logistical side and stuff like that and a bit of kind of editing you know not, not actually feels like editing but the sort of feedback part of it um changes to the film um and then everything that goes around that uh, around doing a film like where it's going online how to get it out to people um merchandise which we've done we've done t-shirts hats and we're doing limited edition btr trail tools which is pretty oh, cool, yeah, cool man. stuff like that building the website for it building the merch platform um but i mean don't want to take, take anything away from tommy he's done all of the hard work basically and uh, it's all his sort of inspiration that's made it such a fun film mm-hmm. very cool very cool and where can people find it where can they download it from is it going to be for sale is it going to be free what way is guys doing it it's free so we, we had a talk with them. we sort of thought about all the different ways you can do it like do you know be on demand sort of thing and or downloads and stuff like that and it's like actually we just want to do it free so everyone can watch it and it's out mm-hmm. there and it's free for all um so it's just on our website misspentsummers.com um there's kind of made a microsite for it which is just misspentsummers.com stroke tea and biscuits Mm-hmm. Um, but if anyone goes on the main website, they'll find it from from Friday thirteenth of March onwards. Um, yeah, very cool. Very cool. There's also uh, stuff on there. There's a photo gallery and a bit of backstory about the film and all the merch is on that page. So, yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, is that something you'd like to be doing in the future again? Stuff like that? Yeah, it's definitely a plan to make it into a bit of a series. Maybe whether it's, I mean, it'll probably remain tea and biscuits. But, you know, we might diversify a little bit it might change a little bit we'll see what tommy's thinking and um mm-hmm. yeah make it into a series of films this was this was number one amazing mate amazing amazing <laughs> james before i let you go mate because i've kept you way too long here yeah, uh, anything exciting you want to or you can share with us about what you're doing in the near future i know you've maybe a new web website coming up yes yeah, so that'll, that'll hopefully be launched on friday as well okay so that'll that'll be the website by the time people listen to this and click onto mm-hmm. it. Um, cool. Ben, Ben Winder's been working his ass off on that. So that's really cool. Um, can't wait. To, can't wait to see that. Cause we've gone for a sort of simple website to start with. And then now we're building it into a bit more of our image, what we sort of want the company to be seen as. Um, and then we're adding a print store to it. So there's going to be like posters and photo prints that people can buy on there as well. Cool. And various other things, all sorts of ideas. See what yeah. time, see how much time you have to do everything, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So, where can people best find you? Is it simply through your website? Yeah, just misspentsummers.com or on Instagram, misspentsummers. Uh, yeah, and then best thing, really, just sign up to our newsletters and we do giveaways and stuff like that. Um, we're going to be doing BTR Trail Tool giveaway soon and merch and stuff like that and then you get the when the books come out then you get first dibs basically as soon as books come out we send them out to newsletter newsletter subscribers so you can make your purchase before anyone else and then you know at the end end of the year that's quite important because people are often getting them for christmas so they want to get Mm -hmm. them get the order in nice and early cool um and the first leg of the downhill series has been cancelled due to the corona yeah Um, 
Yeah, so we might yeah. not have a book this year, actually. We'll see. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, hopefully I mean, they'll reschedule yeah. or something, huh? Yeah, yeah. So obviously that's rescheduled. And the first two EWS races as well are, are looking like they're going to be rescheduled for the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is obviously difficult but necessary decision. And it was good, good decision by the EWS organisers as well to make a decision and hopefully... I mean, it's you know they're quite early in announcing it. Hopefully, mm-hmm. loads of people won't lose loads of money <laughs> on yeah. flights and stuff like that. My girlfriend races the Enduro World Series, and you know she's fortunate that she has a team behind her. But for other people who are paying their own way out there, obviously, hope can only hope that their insurance will cover it and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's difficult times, but we'll get through it as we always do. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Cool. Well, James, listen, thanks so much for your time. I, I really do appreciate it. And um, congratulations on what you're doing there. I, You know, you, you've seen an, a niche, but I think it really needs it. And I, I'm sure the EWS and all are really thankful for somebody like yourself doing what you're doing because you've got a beautiful product. So well done, man. Well Great. done. Thank you so much. That's a massive compliment. And likewise to you as well, because obviously you're in it for the passion as well. And uh, it's great to sort of record a scene and uh, get to know some different people through your podcast as well. We might not yeah. might not have heard of otherwise. Yeah, for sure, man. And you know, once a lot of the listeners to this show will hear Glenn's name mentioned, they'll be going and checking out that video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so brilliant, man. So thanks so much for coming on and here. Good luck for 2020, and um, I'll certainly be signing up to that newsletter as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. A pleasure. That's a wrap for episode 132, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it made you forget about everything that's going on for at least an hour or so and uh, you enjoyed the show. Now, James, thanks so much, sir, for coming on. I really enjoyed our chat and I really love what you're doing with the misspent summer stuff. Your new website and all looks amazing. So uh, congratulations on that. And um, I hope the Team Biscuits thing is going really well for you. And looking at downloads on YouTube, I know it has been. So well done, bud. And I hope to speak to you in the near future. Now, folks, if you want to know more about Misspent Summers, more about James, just go to the show notes, mtb-tribe.com. Click on James's episode and you will find a little bit more information there. You'll also find links to the Team Biscuits show on YouTube and all of misspent summer's social links and things like that and you can get in contact via there thanks so much for tuning in today's i really appreciate it and if you want to help the show the best way is by subscribing rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts every one of your ratings helps boosts us on apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people hopefully getting them off the sofa and onto the saddle Now, if you're not on Apple, you can also find us and subscribe via Stitcher, Spotify and Podbean. We are on most of the podcast platforms, so you should be able to find us wherever you like to listen to your shows. We also have a website, mtb-tribe.com, where you can find the complete back catalogue. Listen and download every show from there. And as always, it's free, completely free. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the show i won't bombard you with emails every day or anything like that you can also get involved obviously on the old social media platforms we are at mtb tribe on instagram and facebook and please share with friends anybody you think may be interested in the show in the podcast or 
in a particular episode that may be relevant to them, please share it with them and uh, get them involved. It's the way we grow the show. It's all done organically, and um, I thank you guys so much for doing that because I know a lot of you get involved and help the show that way. At the end of each show, I normally tell you to go out on your bike, hit the trails, and stay MTB stoked. But it's maybe not possible for everybody right now. But please, if you can, always get the media on, get the TV on, watch old races, do what you can. But as always, if you can, it's always, always good to stay MTB stoked. <laughs>